This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Beiser grew up on a northern kibbutz in Israel with her Argentinian father and her French mother. She was just six years old when she started to learn Bach's unaccompanied cello suites. And she did so while she was surrounded by the music and the rituals of Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And speaking of this incredible soundscape, at the end of the day and into the night, she would unwind listening to Janis Joplin and Billie Holiday, and her parents would be in the other room enjoying tango music. It was a pretty incredible way to grow up. And the thing is, she never thought she'd actually record these unaccompanied cello suites. But something changed. You'll find out what that was as we learn about her new recording, Infinite Bach, this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. So first of all, thank you for speaking with me about your new recording. I don't think we've had a chance to talk before, so... I'm looking forward to this. Oh, I'm so happy to. Well, let's dive in and talk about you. I want to talk a little bit about Johann Sebastian Bach, just kind of generally to start off. Do you still start every day practicing the music of Bach? I do. I do. (laughs) And why do you do that? So, you know, the earliest memory, the earliest musical memory that I have is of Bach, and not just Bach, but specifically of the Bach uh, cello suites. You know, I grew up in in Israel, in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee, um, at the time where uh, there was constant threat of war. And we spent actually a lot of time in in, uh, shelters during my early childhood. I grew up in a commune. It was called a kibbutz. Um, Some of your audience might know the term, but... uh, it was kind of a strange community because all my father's from Argentina and um, most of the people in the kibbutz were Argentinian. So it was this very, very happy, uh, artistic uh, community. But it was a difficult time as a child. And my father was never been a professional musician, but was um, loved music and had perfect pitch and, and would always just listen to music. He bought this old uh, recording of Pablo Casals of the cello suites. And that is the earliest memory of my childhood is that pleasure of just listening to that music in my parents' little my house. Um, and it was the sense of safety and the connection that music always had for love with me since that very early beginning. So when I started to play the cello at the age of six, I immediately, after about a year, started to play the Bach suites because that is the kind of the core repertoire, right, of every cellist. And that really became uh, kind of a ritual for me from very early on to just, it's sort of a check-in. It's, it's uh, you know, I 
in the back then I didn't do it, but now I'm, you know, I meditate every day and I, and I do yoga. And so it's kind of, I have this little routine that's happening and, and playing, playing something from a box, which, which just became part of that routine. And um, throughout the years, it evolved for me. What I would, because sometimes I would just improvise around it, or I would just try to find a certain chord that meant something to me in that particular moment and go from there. I spent a lot of time actually just trying to unlearn and relearn things as I went along in my artistic journey, because I felt that... I wanted to find a, a, a clear, unencumbered by a sort of preconceived notion, I, you know, approach to the music, just a direct way. And, and, you know, I don't know how much you know, Julie, about kind of the work that I've done, but I've really spent the last, I don't know, 30, 35 years uh, working in creating new repertoire, working with with composers, collaborators, friends of mine, uh, artists from a lot of different genres, and really being involved in the creative process in a kind of different way than just, quote-unquote, being an interpreter, which is what we learn how to do first, you know, as, as an instrumentalist. So for me, Bach was just this kind of... It was... It had its own unique place in my world but I never felt it was it was sort of like my own personal journey with that music and I never thought I was going to record the boss suites because I always felt that there were enough recordings out there there were wonderful cellists who have already done that and I felt that I had a different mission you know which is to expand kind of the vernacular of of my art and my and the cello and what and it's cello for me was really sort of a vehicle to all the things that I wanted to do as an artist so yeah so that's that's Bach and I'm happy to tell you a little more why I decided to uh, to come to it now but um or it, it or why did it come to me because it wasn't really a decision it was sort of just something that happened yeah go ahead because I know that you went to this unique recording environment, yeah. an old barn, mm-hmm. and then you developed this way of literally having the suites speak to the space. Yes. So talk a little bit about how this evolved then, because it sounds like it it was sort of meant to be, if you will. Yes, yes, I think it was. And, you know, I mean, the funny thing is that when I was 30, I thought, okay, when I'm 40, I'll re- maybe when I'm 40, I'll consider recording the boss suites. And then when I'm 40, it's okay, maybe when I'm 50 and, you know, I'm 60 now. So it's, it was kind of a big momentous moment. Um, and I'm, I mean, it's, I, I think 60, I think it's the most amazing time uh, f- for me, at least I'm feeling better than I've ever felt. And, and um there's something so liberating about sort of being in that place that I am now where, you know, my kids are grown up and, and I can uh, sort of come back to my uh, art and my performance and what I want to do and without worrying about all these other things, you know. I mean, for years I had to juggle being a mother and and a partner and, and you know, all these things. And then the pandemic. No, that's actually really important. I'm glad you said that because... Um, I think, you know, I'm of your generation, so I totally get this, that it's like all of a sudden. And then there's also this thing that 
wondering if people still want to hear from me right. at this point in my life, right? Like, do they still want to hear what I have to say about my work, my art? There is so much that we could talk about when it comes to that. And I'm actually, you know, developing a sort of, a, you know, and I might end up actually doing sort of a big project about that because I think, I think we're, we're in a very important time that way for women who are kind of coming out of the age of you know childbearing and, and all that and, and sort of what that means. And it used to mean, of course, back not that long ago that you were kind of gone, you know, you're no longer useful. But I think that it's, it's a wonderful time because there's so many women our generation who are really um, taking ownership of, of their lives in that time. And I think Partly, it, learning to take care of oneself is such an important part of it. You know, so it's what you eat, it's how you lead your life, it's 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 how you deal with stress, as, as, as simple things as exercise, right? All those things that are so important. But I'm feeling such sense of vitality and, you know, just... I'm happy to get up in the morning <laughs> and... Uh, and dream of all those things that I want to do. And I feel like it's all kind of out there for me. So that's just a wonderful thing. And I, it's something I love talking about because I, I, I want to uh, inspire other women as well to, to feel that they can do that at this point. Um, but for me, it's, yeah, it's all this great journey. I don't make sort of pre-calculate decisions about what I'm going to do next. I sort of allow things to come to me. And I feel that just by being open and, and alert to what's right and what's happening, that sort of, it just leads me to the right place. And so, you know, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, right, I was in the middle of a tour I was doing this uh, wonderful project with a um, fantastic dancer, Wendy Whalen from the New York City Ballet. Um, and we were on this big 40-city tour all over the world. We actually just came from Paris after two weeks of performances there. And I was supposed to premiere this big piece in Carnegie Hall. And boom, right? Everything stops. And so I found myself at home. And, you know, that whole time was actually crazy blissful. I wasn't worried about myself because I felt I was in a really blessed position that I could afford to take that time off. And for me, that time was just kind of a time to reflect and and to to take a break. It was sort of a welcome break from from the, you know, treadmill kind of going on tour nonstop and going from one thing after the other. And during that time, my partner and I found this house in the Berkshires. Again, it was just sort of like one day just sort of were led to that place. It wasn't a place that we necessarily thought that we wanted to to go, but we just fell in love with that place because it was remarkable and inspiring and it had a it's a, it had this separate barn it was converted barn but it just had the most incredible acoustics and as soon as we decided to buy the place the first day I was there I just I took my cello 
And I sat there in the middle of this empty space and just started to play the Bach suites. And I just all of a sudden realized that this is what I want to do for the next year. And so my decision was not, okay, let me just go and do it. Let's just do it next week. You know, we're taking six days and doing it. But rather I decided I'm going to take a year and I'm going to find the time every time that I have time to come back there to just explore. And so it was an open-ended kind of exploration of a full year of just exploring what can we do? How can I find the sound that somehow takes this music and transforms it into another realm? I imagine the cello as the sort of giant organ that just sort of, you know, takes over. And I wanted to create all these different reverbs and, you know, delays and stuff, but without any any artificial electronics. So I wanted everything to be acoustic. And the challenge, of course, is that the suites, they're, they're just, it's just a one line. It's a solo piece, you know, and I love building layers of cello which is what I've done with a lot of my other recordings. So what we did is we actually recorded the one line, but we recorded it in multi-channels, 14 different channels of mics that were in different directions in the space. And so then you just get this swirling spatial atmosphere around it. And we started there. And then there was a whole bunch of other things that we did later on with, with the recording. It was a, really a beautiful process of a year. Um, that was a long answer. <laughs> that was the long version. That's the, that's the long version. I got it. But it was all important. So this recording was inspired in part by Alvin Lussier's 1969 piece, I Am Sitting in a Room. Yes. And that music is actually about listening and about what it's like to have ears as a human being. Can you talk more about that and how that provided inspiration for you? Yes. I mean, that piece is one of the most inspiring. I mean, it's it's a really important piece for me uh, because just the idea of, again, just using a very simple mean to completely transform something from one thing to the next and, and to use that evolution, to, to experience that evolution of the sound from something that we recognize that it's coherent to something that is completely ethereal and unrecognizable and mysterious. That's kind of what he achieved. And I've done a lot of that sort of exploration in my own recordings with the techniques of how to record um, and, you know, trying to bring the room into the space. But this is, in, with the box, but I think it was sort of the culmination of that for uh, for me because it's really... That was a big focus of this recording is to try to to do that. And, you know, the thing is, 
The art of performing and the art of being an artist, a performing artist, is the art of listening. That is what it's about. I had an old teacher who was just, you know, when I was a teenager, it was just this wonderful violinist. His name was Rami Shevelov. He was just really a brilliant guy who knew how to put those things. But he would talk about how, especially when you play a string instrument, it's an instant thing because you need to be able to hear in your head what you want to hear and then to play it. And then at the same time, also hear what you actually hear. So it's sort of this very intricate thing that happens in your brain. And the only way uh, or the interesting way is that you actually be able to hear what you want to hear before you actually hear it. And so it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting thing about, particularly about being a, a, a string player, because, you know, unlike a piano, you don't have a particular place where you put your fingers. You need to be able to hear it and you need to have your body react at that same time, you know, and tell you, oh yeah, this is exactly where you have to put your finger and that's when it's where it's going to be the note that you want. But there's also about, okay, what kind of sound do you want to hear? Do you want to hear, you know, so there's so many levels of intricacy that comes into just creating one sound. This is to me, I think the most important part of the art of performance is the ability to listen. And then, and then there is this other element, which is listening to beyond just what's there in the instrument, listening to the room, listening to the people. When you're, when 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 I'm in a big concert hall and there are all these silent people there, but you feel them, you hear them, you experience. You know, there's there's all these uh, different levels and layers that create an experience of uh, a performance of music, and so. The one thing I, I never really liked, Julie, was just going into a sort of recording studio with where there's no windows and you just sit there and it's all so sterile. You're literally sitting in front of a computer or something or often not even that. And it's just always felt artificial to me, you know, to, to really connect deeply into you know, my soul and into the soul of the music and being in this kind of very sterile environment. So one of my favorite places actually to record is this studio in London called Air Studios, which is an old church. It's in one of the greatest recording studios, but it's just such an inspiring room because it's it's, it's kind of like that barn that I have in, in the Birches, but it's a little grander, but it's it's just a beautiful space. So you sit there and you want to make something beautiful because you're in this incredibly beautiful place and there's light and there's, you know, all of that that just gives, it gives back to you, you know. So the idea that the room gives back and then that feeds into what you do, that's what I wanted to get. And that's what Alvin Lucier did with that, with that piece. And so um, that's kind of, that was that connection. And this barn, too, as you're describing the space, does, did, doesn't it have glass windows? And is there a waterfall that you have? I mean, come on. Yes, it does. <laughs> it sounds ideal, yes. like, to really get into I your... I know, I uh, know. Into the mood of the music. It and... really is. It really... Uh, it really is. And, and, you know, and it's pretty acoustically insulated, but not completely. 
And so you do get sometimes uh, the sounds of the water. And um, actually, there was this one day, I think it was late November 2022, we were recording the D minor Sarabon. Which is very beautiful, you know, sad. Um, one of my favorite of, of the sweets, Sour Bands. It was raining really hard. And I could hear the rain, you know, inside. So I, I my, my sound engineer, Dave Cook, who's really a gift, uh, incredible guy. And, and I told him, why don't we just go outside and record the sound of the rain and somehow incorporate it in the piece? not even know it because we did it in such a way that it just sort of adds this ambient that you might not recognize it as rain but but all of that every little element like that just gives another uh, dimension And that place is just waking up there in the morning and just hearing the birds and looking at the trees and the seasons, you know, I don't know if you've been to the Berkshires, but I mean, the seasons there, they just are so powerful. You know, when when you go through the autumn, I mean, it's just all red and incredible, you know, all these colors. And then when it's snow, and, and it's just so beautiful. It's actually probably my favorite time was uh, during the snow and we recorded a lot during, you know, winter time. Everybody loves to go there during the summer, but I actually prefer the darker season. Just also, they're a lot more quiet there, you know, and so it's a great time to, to reflect and to record. I watched a couple of the videos um, that were sent to me and there is one where water is pouring over you and I'm like, yes! What on earth? Like you've got a cello and there's like, it's just like somebody's dumping water on you and then you're dry. And what, what, tell me about that. What is, <laughs> it made me think of that when you were talking about this rain coming down. I thought, oh, maybe this makes more sense now. Well, I'll tell you what that is. So, I mean, there are actually several, several inspirations to that piece. There was an avant-garde cellist in the 1970s by the name of Charlotte Merman. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She was a pioneer, worked a lot with one of the pioneers of video art, Nam Jung Pike. And uh, they created this uh, kind of crazy stuff together. But she was someone that I was, you know, I always was fascinated with her work. And she, she really turned into more of a performance artist rather than a cellist. But she was, in fact, a Juilliard graduate, a pretty pretty good cellist at some point, and then went off to doing all this avant-garde performance art. She was a very good friend with Yoko Ono and John Cage and all these people. One of the things that they did together was this piece. It's called Sonata for Adults Only, and where he had her <laughs> sit on this platform wearing this incredible gown, playing Bach, and in the middle of the performance, she just gets up, 
leaves her cello and goes down the platform and there was a kiddie pool and she just goes into the pool and then emerges completely wet and then goes back to the cello and then finishes the piece. And, you know, it was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing. I mean, it's 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 very 1970s. You know, it's not necessarily something that I, <laughs> I would have repeat, but the idea behind it, the idea of sort of breaking up that precious, you know, sense of like perfectness of like, you know, the gown and the whole thing and, and like this sort of, um, you know, the thing that I've tried to break out of in the classical music world, which is, you know, like, God forbid you can't clap or God forbid you do something wrong, you know, like you have to sit there and you have to think of it as this really serious event. And so, so this was always in the back of my mind. And then I had this dream, recurrent dream of me uh, just playing the cello and the room just getting filled with water. And I don't really know why I had this dream. I think it was something about the fear, actually, of damaging my cello, you know, because water on a cello is devastating, you know. And, and I have several cellos, but the cello that I actually recorded this album on is a 17th century Italian incredible instrument, you know, and, and God forbid that a drop of water would be on that cello. Um, but I've always just thought that there's just something so, you know, water, water is, is, you know, the source of life. I mean, the tree that the cello is made from couldn't exist if there was not water, right? We are all made of water. And um, so it's such an important element of creation and, and of, of, of life that I've always wanted to, I, I always wanted to do that. So um, we got a cello in Walmart for $150. Um, literally, we just found this cello that looked good cello quote unquote because you know made from plywood but it did actually sound like a cello to some degree and so we felt like that would be okay if we put water on that <laughs> the whole shoot was just such a it was it was very it was great because we did it in one shot one I wore this gown it was uh, this sort of gold and I knew that once the water would hit it it would become this transparent and would just have this like really different it would evolve so we worked with that but we couldn't you know we just did it in one time there was um, my producer created this contraption where there was a pool under I sat on a platform and there was a um, a pool of water under the under the platform and there was a pump that was pumping the water up above my head so as I started to play the pump just went and started to pour water and that's <laughs> that's how we were able to do it and we just did it in one shot um and that was the video that you saw but I I love that video because it kind of takes you into this whole idea of um performance is is about something else it's about the imperfection of of humanity you know and 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 all these messiness that happens and and it's and i think too often in the classical music world we just are so occupied with perfection and so for me art is about about that about the all these other things <laughs> that are part of who we are i think as as humans 
I just saw something right before we started talking. I came across a comment that you made in your liner notes where you say the sweets, some believe, bear a whisper of Bach's wife. Was she maybe the unrecognized composer of this music? We'll never know, probably, but maybe she felt this work in her bones the way I do. Why did you feel you needed to include this? Because, um, and I'll say something that I may regret, Julie, but I feel like what I bring is kind of something about being a woman and how I see Bach through the lens of a woman. Whereas... My entire conservatory route, all my teachers were men. All my mentors were men. And they always told me, you need to listen to Pablo Casals and Rostropovich and Pierre Fournier. And I mean, I can give you the list. They were all older men. And so there was no model of how would a woman think of this music? You know, and I do believe that women bring a different perspective. You know, I know this because I've talked to a lot of scientists that, you know, we have our brain works differently. I think we experience things differently. And and then there was this research there. It's very controversial. There are people who claims that she that Anna Magdalena was actually the one who wrote the sweets. So it's not I didn't invent this. This is a true thing. Now, uh, scholars argue about that, and some people completely dismiss it, and other thinks that that's very valid. Uh, but it's definitely out there that it's possible that she wrote these pieces. You know, women at that time could not be composers, you know. So during Bach's time, you know, she was his copies. She was just, you know, his wife. I'm not a historian, and I, I'm not, you know, I don't know what the evidence is or not. I just read a whole bunch of stuff about it and and it intrigued me whether it's true or not, <laughs> you know, but I just thought the idea that maybe it is and maybe that was her and maybe there was a different way to, you know, to perceive this music. So I just kind of liked to think about it as I was uh, playing, <laughs> playing it. So I guess this was my way of saying I'm presenting a feminine I wanted to ask you a question about growing up on the kibbutz in Israel because you were surrounded by the music and rituals of Jews, Muslims, and Christians while you were studying classical repertoire, and this is the music you would often play. I'm curious if now when you play it, that that maybe takes you back to that place and that space. Are you still hearing those those reverberations from your childhood of those different elements? I do, I do, yes. So my father, uh, you know, he was a, a gaucho. He was... Um, came from the Pampas in, in Argentina, and um, he was very good friends with all our surrounding neighbors. So we were literally, our little community was surrounded by uh, mostly Bedouins. Most of them were Muslims, and they were right around us. And, and there was also a Christian village, and there was a, a village of Druze. And we were very close with a lot of the people there would always go to their weddings and all their rituals. And 
the nearest village was just a mile away from my parents' window, and I would hear every morning at 5 a.m. the sound of the muazin, the call to prayer. And it just became this, again, it, it, for me, it was just like this magical music, just as much as Bach was magical, uh, that was magical too. And I always would go to whatever family rituals that they would have, and, and I was just fascinated by all that music. So it was very much part of my childhood landscape, all these different kinds of music. And... It, it really brings me back. It actually does. I'm, I'm glad you're asking that. You know, I think that's what I, I find to be so interesting about music, right? That I think about it a lot, actually, that the experience, how we hear and how we feel music is so much connected to our own unique experience, right? And And to and to our memories and to our fears. And, and in particular, I think going back to those defining pre-verbal years of our lives. Um, and that's why I think for me, Bach is so important because I think I was exposed to it in the pre-verbal time, you know, before I was able to speak even. And so before I was able to express what that meant, you know, so it's really about these raw feelings uh, of that music. And that's true for for all these other uh, forms and genres that I was surrounded with, I feel so blessed to have had that um, part of my landscape as a child. Are your parents still living? Unfortunately not. I was curious if they had heard this and if it brought back memories for them as well. No, you know, and, and I actually dedicated the album to my father who died a few years ago and he lamented very much the fact that I sort of, because he was a classicist and he loved the old, he loved Bach and uh, had a hard time um, listening to some of the other stuff that I was, that I was, uh, you know, it took him a while to to warm up to, to the crazy contemporary music that I was really <laughs> taking on. So he'd always wanted me to go back to Bach. And in his funeral, I, I played Bach for him. I played the D minor uh, prelude, um, which is the one with the water. And... Um, you know, he would have been very happy to have heard this, I think. Um, you know, I'll just tell you a funny story, but my father was not an easy guy, even though he was uh, wonderful, but very demanding. We have four sisters, and um, and he was just expected the world out of us. I don't know, it was just that kind of perfectionism. And so when I was little, I started to play the cello, and he also really wanted me to be a tennis player and uh, would, you know, train me to play tennis. And then I'll never forget, I think I was 10, and he said, Maya, you have to decide. It's Carnegie Hall or Wimbledon. And I remember telling him, I don't think it's going to be Wimbledon, so why don't we do Carnegie Hall? <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was... But that really was who he was. I mean, and how many times, how many times have you played at Carnegie Hall? A quite, a quite many times, and he's been there, <laughs> so he did get to experience that. And yeah. he must have been so proud. Ah. Yes, yes.
what have you discovered about yourself working on this project? Something maybe even that surprised you? Well, first of all, I think I I didn't know how it's going to feel about playing this music and whether it really still means something to me. And I discovered that I have that, that it's very deeply ingrained, you know, that connection that I have to, to this music. And I think we artists, or at least I am, tend to be very critical of my work and I tend to constantly question myself and be hard on myself. I'm not one to congratulate myself at all. You know, and I'm usually, if I play a concert, my tendency is always to think, oh my God, what, why'd that happen? As opposed to all the other wonderful things that happen. So I, it's not easy for me to look at the good side of things because I'm, I, I think something probably for my father, something very ingrained in me is this sense that as an artist, you constantly have to question everything. But I, one thing I learned and I discovered about myself in this process is that I was able, I think, for the first time maybe, to just allow myself to be, you know, and to just experience the music without this kind of overarching uh, sense of, oh, this has to be perfect, and just to let go, which is something I'm working on. It's, it's, it's a work in progress. Uh, it's definitely is a big goal for me in this next decade. And I think this is to just learn to enjoy life and what you have. And I mean, we all have our own incredible achievement, whatever, whether they're tiny or whether they're big. And yeah, so I think that process taught me that I can, I can find that in me. You know, I can find that way of just enjoying it and not being so hard on myself. Infinite Bach, featuring cellist Maya Beiser. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker.